0: In modern Chinese society, you deal with two separate spheres. So you have the scientific community um, and the system of science in China and you have the political system. So you have this parallel structure of um, scientific research going on and, and this heavily controlled public information.
1: Science Social, a podcast series about how science, history and society connect with and add to the big questions that we all have today. This show is created by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name's Stephanie Hood, and in each episode, I'm joined by a guest from our Institute to talk about their research, their big questions, and some of the weird and wonderful experiences they've had along the way. I'm here today with Dr. Anna Arles, researcher in political sociology. Um, she started here earlier this year to start a Lisa Meitner Research Group in China in the global system of science. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the various facets of China's ascent in glo- global system of science, as well as Anna's research and path into studying this really interesting topic um, and at an in- institute for the history of science. So, welcome, Anna. Uh, Many of us are very excited for your new research group, uh, not least because it's so topical. So I thought maybe let's begin by talking a bit about something we're all familiar with, COVID-19. China was the first epicenter of COVID-19 Could you tell me a bit about how the flow of scientific information and communication on the coronavirus evolved in China since the beginning of the outbreak?
0: Yeah, hello, Stephanie. COVID-19 is indeed a very um, interesting topic to start with because it covers so many of the questions that we are interested in in our research group. The interaction of the political system in China and the scientific system in China. And as you said, how scientific knowledge evolved um, is a, like It's a crime story to follow, I think, uh, and we are only slowly beginning to read better reconstructions of what actually happened at the beginning of the pandemic in China. So the story here is always that the central government controlled a lot of the, the data and the scientific research, and that's definitely true. But what actually happened at the beginning is that people very, very soon realized that something new was going on and that there was a very aggressive virus uh, developing in China. And so it was not only doctors, but also private labs that began to to sequence the new virus. So. And that actually went very fast. It was done within a few days in these labs. Uh, But then it took a long time before this information was shared more widely uh, by the health authorities in China and with the whole world. And I think that's where a lot of this media reporting about China not cooperating with the WHO and uh, the rest of the world starts. But actually, I think this whole story is very complex and very, very exciting to follow. And there's a lot of differences between as I said, private labs, and I would call them the regular scientists, the virologists and pneumologists, um, and the government-affiliated scientists in, in health authorities or the Center for Disease Control.
1: On that note, how did the Chinese science community react when you sort of say that there's this difference between different groups? Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean my information so far only also stems from media reporting in China and in the west there was this um, associate press report coming out a few days ago which was very uh, detailed and very actually very exciting to read what we see in all this reporting is that uh, what I just call the regular scientists uh, or the private labs they based on their excellent qualifications and infrastructure they were able to identify or to sequence the new virus, the genomic information about this new virus in, in record time. But then, because once it became obvious that this was a really aggressive and potentially pandemic problem they were dealing with, um, I think it was the authorities who decided that they now had to decide on what, uh, what was to be shared and what was to be done about it. So you have this... Parallel structure of um, scientific research going on and and this heavily controlled public information.
1: So, actually reflecting on the current situation, from what you just described about scientific and academic practice in China and and how that's sort of connected to its politics, I mean, can you give us a bit of an overview of how science has been viewed and developed throughout Chinese history? I mean, is the what's the background to this? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think one of this, uh, the huge narratives we have about um, science in, in modern China is that the Communist Party of China is actually built upon this technocratic principle where, where science and knowledge and scientific developments were always part of of legitimacy building for the Chinese political leadership. Where I see a difference to the history of science and technology in China um, is that we still, we are dealing with two separate spheres. So we have the system of science uh, and we have the political system, whereas I would roughly say in history both were much more overlapping and uh, while the political leadership is very much depending on the best knowledge, the most accurate data, the best technical solutions to problems they are facing, um, they at the same time put a lot of constraint on the scientific community and that might be different for different fields, whereas some fields are allowed to experiment more and innovate more autonomously, you could say, other fields for instance, uh, sociology or political science, uh, as much as much of the like the social science and the, the humanities in China, uh, are much more controlled because they they are often, as we know, responsible for putting out narratives or historical accounts of how things develop, and that's something that, of course, the political leadership in China wants to control more. Whereas they want to be world leading in new technologies, life sciences, and 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 all these areas.
1: That must create some challenges for you working in China and looking at China specifically. Would you say the challenges of getting
0: access or the challenges of just uh, the problematic situation that scientists sometimes find themselves in in China?
1: I think a combination of probably both. both. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I assume they're not completely disconnected Mm -hmm. from each other.
0: Um, in terms of access, I think I'm still pretty optimistic. I mean, we experience a decrease in possibilities to do field work in China over the last few years, not only because of, of COVID-19 now, that of course is an additional challenge because it restricts travel basically, but also getting access to um, informants in China has become much more difficult over the last few years my experience is that it depends on what you're actually interested in i mean i don't travel there to reveal how problematic things are i travel there to study and to learn how things work in the first in the first place and i think if that is what you what you what you Communicate to your counterparts, your informants, uh, your in- interlocutors, or or anybody else. Then, then access is usually m- much more possible than than if you you know you present it very differently
1: yeah that makes sense actually I have a question that's not on here but I'm curious now and I'm feeling nosy now I'm getting kind of into it how does it work in terms of you organizing your research like um how do you decide who you want to speak to and reach out to them and arrange to go and see them I mean presumably you have a, a restricted amount of time that you can spend on your fieldwork, and you need to kind of make a decision about who you talk to and what in what way and Yeah, I
0: mean, my answer is probably troubling to a few uh, social scientist colleagues because you can never have or you you can never expect to get a beautiful sample uh, of, for for instance, informants when you go to China because there are just so many restrictions. I mean, there are a lot of possibilities, but there are also many, many restrictions. So I cannot upfront say, okay, I want to talk to uh, a group of people and they should be equally like, you know, there should be representatives of this and this group. group and this category you can try but uh, I think you have to always scale down your ambitions a little bit (laughs) when you enter the field Uh, and then it all or not all but much of it works through personal context Um, people you know from before people um, who you are Chinese colleagues that you work with know that's I think uh, the latter is the most promising um, version and then of course as a researcher you have you, you still have to to Make sure that you get a as much of an objective picture as you can get, knowing that uh, these informants or these group of people, the place you're going to is of course heavily preselected by the fact that it goes through your your Chinese colleagues, for instance. So you, it's it's very hard to get a um, a super nicely, beautifully representative sample. Of locations or informants in China. That's often a problem for social science research. But since I'm doing qualitative research anyway, um, that's uh, that's what we have to live with. And I think there are ways and means to to balance these constraints and limits in research but you have to always be aware of it and you have to be transparent about it I think that's important but my experience in recent years was that it, it still works pretty well through personal contacts uh, but there are pretty strong limits at the at the moment and that's why uh, I also think that um, the new research group um, is better equipped to deal with these challenges because we just work with a, a whole variety of of sources and and data and methods. Uh, we have already been discussing that. So, uh, textual analysis uh, and other forms of methods will become much more important for me now than they have been in the past. Also, because of these growing restrictions.
1: So, yeah, why are these restrictions increasing? The restrictions are increasing
0: because there is a lot more pressure on people, if I would, if I if I can put it generally. Especially on, in my case, it was always local officials that I talked to. And in, uh, for instance, the early 2000s, say between the late 1990s and 2010, um, I was lucky because I was doing fieldwork in a period, I would call it the golden period, because there was much more openness towards foreign visitors or visitors at all, experts, researchers going into the field, talking to, as I said, in this case, local officials about how they implement policies and what they're doing and how this, the local state in China functions. Um, and now, and I would say it has to do with uh, with the start of the Xi Jinping administration in 2012, 2013. The administration has a lot, um, a much stronger will to control both the narratives as well as the, uh, the employed solutions to certain problems. Chinese politics. So they reduced the autonomy for uh, local officials to decide upon ways of, of dealing with problems. And also now I would say it also hits Chinese researchers who want to understand uh, the policy process in China and want to get to information about, you know, finances, uh, uh, discussions going on behind closed doors and local governments on how to implement certain things. Um, but in general, doing large scale interviews with local officials is, I wouldn't say impossible, but it's really, really hard at the moment. So there is this narrative um, that you should not share too much internal information, whereas internal can mean many things. You should. I, it, it leads to people being afraid of talking to anyone. Um, Because it could get you into trouble. So it's not even that the information itself is so sensitive, but it's just that people are so afraid to do anything uh, that would get you, uh, that would get them in trouble and ruin their career. And that's why they are just, just cautious.
1: Do you think that the COVID-19 outbreak will
0: make that worse? From what we hear, when people try to understand what I initially said, the the, the development of, uh, of things in China in December and January, uh, there was pretty striking that this was the case. So there were gag orders, and even uh, I think authorities in some cases even closed down certain labs and completely um, forbid people to talk to someone else, uh, the press, but, but anyone about what was going on. So it's just one representation of of this uh increasing closure i think it's extreme i think that's i think uh, in terms of covid19 we see this in an extreme crisis mode i think it's maybe a bit less centrally controlled uh, in normal times or for other topics
1: we've talked a bit now about the environment in which um, science in china operates Your research is focused on environmental air pollution, right? Um, Could you maybe tell us a bit more about how environmental factors for science, as you write, could impact this kind of research? The group,
0: as you mentioned, will deal with China in the global system of science and everything that comes with it. So, also these macro questions about um, scientific conduct in China as being constrained or sometimes enabled by the political regime. And what uh, I became interested in when I did work on on the air pollution challenge in China was this. Um, paradox between um, the political authorities or you could say the political system as a whole being in need of really good accurate data Suggestions for solutions in order to fight this massive, massive pollution problem. Um, while at the same time, they pre-selected the things they wanted to work with in the end. And I know, I mean, that's that's a phenomenon we see also, I mean, around the world now in, in times of um, COVID nineteen. The role of experts vis a vis the role of politicians. Politicians have to make the decision. Scientists usually only deliver data. Um, whereas I, I, I would say there's still um, a difference because you don't usually have this uh, this extra loop that we see also unfolding now under uh, COVID nineteen um, conditions here, where the public is involved in also trying to understand scientific facts and data and. Um, n- and identifying ways of of desired solutions. In China it's basically a relation between the scientists and the political authorities. The public is usually totally left out of this picture. Of course, they also don't make a choice, they cannot select the political decision that is taken on the basis of, of scientific data uh, for, for example, problems like um, air pollution. It's, it's something that happens exclusively between the scientific community and the political community. And that was also a very, very striking observation in the field.
1: So this connects then to your to this concept of authoritarian environmentalism um, that kind of comes to play here on both sides. Or how do you see that?
0: This whole notion of authoritarian environmentalism says that uh, an authoritarian political system has or is better equipped in some way than democratic political system systems when they deal with especially with with environmental challenges, uh, pollution, uh, hazards, uh, those sorts of things, because I think it's twofold. Uh, on the one hand, you as an authoritarian government can restrict individual freedoms, uh, freedoms of mobility and consumption much faster and better, also because there's no discussion about it, of course. So in, in I think when this whole debate about authoritarian environment mentalism evolved and people were starting to think, okay, when we face that much of a challenge, such as climate change, what can we do? What are the political solutions? And then the fear was that people would always decide against uh, regulations or rules that would restrict their individual freedom in democracies. They would debate about it and then in the end, they would not accept solutions that would mean a restriction of freedom. Um, And then the counter-narrative was that in authoritarian systems, you could just do it. And the other dimension is that modern authoritarian uh, regimes such as the one in China often uh, claim to be technocratic, which means that they have an exclusive access to knowledge and data uh, and to potential mostly technological uh, solutions to problems Um, and they have also a large bureaucracy of scientifically educated um, politicians or officials who have the means to evaluate what is the best solution for a big problem you are facing. And this is also what um, I think we saw unfolding when we looked at how China is dealing with, uh, was dealing, you could say, but still is dealing with this large uh, smog problem um, across the country, especially in in Chinese cities. but our argument, in, especially in one article that we published about it, that is the bit. So you have to add a bit nuance to this picture because you, it's not that black and white. It's not that uh, in China. Political leadership or political authorities can just implement what they see as the best solution without taking care of or taking into account any stakeholder or any any diverging opinion or alternative solutions. They have to deal with all these facts. They do it in in specific ways. But uh, in our view. And our argument was that yes, I think uh, you could say that China is a real life example of authoritarian environmentalism, but you probably have to change the definition of authoritarian environmentalism a little bit to make it fit what you empirically see when you you study China.
1: The idea of science as a value in itself is also rising in China. Do you think this is contradictory to notions of authoritarian environmentalism or are these concepts somehow connected?
0: yeah, you could say why the rise then if uh, if if environmentalism is built into the authoritarian system we see in China. Uh, but I would still say that it's not it's not contradictory. It's just that if i if I write about um, the rise of science as a value in the political context in China, You see, I think I have enough evidence to say that while knowledge and technology was always important, um, more accurate scientific data and also maybe search, more open search for solutions has become valued more in, I would say, the last 20 years in China. What I mean also is that um, it's not only political authorities that are uh, relying more on, on scientists as experts and on scientific data. It's also, the, the, I would say, um, large parts of the Chinese public see science as a new political value. Uh, whereas they probably had not that much access to scientific data uh, before say, of course, of course, before the reform and opening um, politics started in, in, in the late 70s, but also even in the 80s and 90s, now, of course, with social media and different means of getting access to information, um, people are very well educated, um, but also especially when it comes to environmental pollution, people understand really often very well what the issue is and what, for example, the health risks of air pollution are. And they also use this knowledge and they use the knowledge about uh, possible solutions they have read about when they face political authorities so what you can see in a lot of the local protests against uh, environment pollution or or against for instance certain factories being built is that people really refer to scientific data and analyses more than policies or law that's always of course what you would uh, cite and refer to when you protest now it's really sometimes really high level accurate scientific analyses that that these people cite when they protest against a chemical factory or when they write letters of complaints to local authorities and that i I really find super interesting
1: i was just going to finish off actually just to i mean Just to tie up, what are the next steps then for your research going from there, for your research group, for your, I know that you you have new postdocs and predocs joining you. Um, I think uh,
0: what's interesting, but also a challenge about the group is that we have very, very diverse uh, research topics we are dealing with. So we have this overarching interest and framework, but in the end everyone is going to do uh, his or her own individual project on a quite specific topic. So we have uh, one pre-doc, Andrea, who is working on the internationalization of Chinese universities. We have another pre-doctoral fellow, Trim, who will uh, deal with uh, Chinese polar scientists, navigation between being on the one hand diplomats and also full-time researchers myself i will uh, f- the first project i would like to do is uh, building upon uh, the project i have described where we looked at air pollution and how how scientists and, and political authorities interacted uh, the focus was still more on, on the political authorities and how they um, how they actually found local solutions to the smog problem uh, what i want to do now is to look more closely at this general relationship of of experts and scientists in politics in China, uh, also at the very local level, and not necessarily only in the environmental field, but also many other fields. And then also study what are the differences for different disciplines. Because, of course, if you work in a more, say, technology oriented or in the natural sciences, um, it might be easier to communicate about data and solutions with the local authorities than when you are a social scientist and uh, you present specific findings about, you know, Chinese population control or or household registration or things like that so that's what I would like to do and we'll see where we are maybe next year at this time and then hopefully I have also much more concrete stories to share with you
1: it's all really exciting we're very very excited to have you here thank Thank you thank you very much Anna for the interview thank you and welcome to the institute thank you this is it for today if you like what you just heard we love your support Click the subscribe button, recommend this to your friends and colleagues, or give us a thumbs up in your favourite podcast app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. Science Social is produced by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Music by Poddington Bear, Then I'm the host, Stephanie Hood. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at, at MPIWG. And most of all, thanks for listening.